most people hear about the Mandela effect and they go, so what? It's false memory. What's the big deal? I have false memories too. But when you actually do a deeper dive on the evidence, in my opinion, you realize, okay, this is legitimately hard to explain. Do you remember South African civil rights leader Nelson Mandela dying in prison during the 1980s? Do you remember a 90s film starring Sinbad called Shazam? How about the cornucopia on the Fruit of the Loom logo? If you answered yes to any of these, you have a false memory, and you are experiencing what some have come to call the Mandela Effect. What is the Mandela Effect? What does it have to do with the late science fiction writer Philip K. Dick? And could the Mandela Effect be evidence that you originate in a parallel universe? Or are the weirder theories about the Mandela Effect just unserious pseudoscience? You decide, but stay tuned. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. I'm really excited today to uh, introduce DJ Dooley. He's a paranormal researcher and remote contractor for the CIA. And uh, he is here to talk to us about the Mandela Effect and the Fruit of the Loom phenomena. Welcome to the show, DJ. Nice to be here. So, uh, DJ, I was impressed by the research you've been doing. Um, Actually, first, I wanted to follow up on that bio. So uh, you are a remote contractor for the CIA? A remote viewer. Yeah, yeah. I'm a civilian contractor in the sense that I do remote viewing with them or for them, however you want to look at it. I, I'm a remote viewer for them, yeah. Okay, and so you, do you go into Langley? No, no, I don't. It's all, it's all very remote, as one could imagine. Uh, um, yeah, I don't do that, no. So wait, so you're, you're a remote viewer. Tell everybody what a remote viewer is. Okay, so remote viewing is basically, it's a term that was coined, I believe, by Ingo Swan um, when he was doing remote viewing research, uh, psi research for the CIA. And it's basically a, a way of information gathering. It's, it's using, um, we think, non-local consciousness to gather intelligence or other applications conceivably and to um, supplement traditional intelligence gathering uh methods that way that's sort of how it was developed for for you know intelligence purposes but it can be used for anything so yeah and so you're doing um you know they want to know how many uh how many of these iranian uh, drones that they have in bulagrad russia so they say can you can you visualize the drones right that kind of thing is what they ask you to do well 
Yeah, I mean, they that sort of thing has been done before. They have lots of different applications for it. Um, but basically, it's using non-local consciousness, using some sort of sensory perception beyond the five senses, um, or sort of including them in a certain sense, to, to gather information about targets, they call them. So it could be something like that. It could be really any number of things. And so, you, and you do it remotely. So you're remote viewing remotely for the CIA. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be the correct way to put it. Yeah. What would you say to the audience? The audience may be skeptical that you are a remote viewer for the CIA. Any way that we can check into this? Um, I don't think you could just call them up and ask them. I don't think it would be their policy to verify who their remote viewers are. Um, and I don't think I can show you like a badge or anything like that. So. I guess I guess you'll just have to uh, to roll with it. <laughs> it's it's what I do. I'm allowed to say it, and I I don't have any problem saying it. So yeah. Well, maybe you can come back on and talk about remote viewing sometime. So why don't you start off this interview by telling us a little bit about the Mandela effect? But basically, a Mandela effect is a t is a term that was coined by Fiona Brew, and she was a paranormal consultant. I think she calls herself. And I believe she coined it in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. And basically, this is a term that she's giving. In this case, it was because of a, a false memory of Nelson Mandela's death. Can you explain that? So this is, I think, how a good way to get into the Mandela effect. People remember Nelson Mandela, uh, you know, the leader of South Africa. They remember him as being dead long before he actually died, right? That's the Mandela effect. That's where it gets its name. Yes, that was the term that that was the the incident that led to the coining of the term Mandela effect, as I understand it. Okay, very good. What what she she had this memory that she falsely remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 80s. And then at some point she comes to the conclusion that, well, lots of other people have this false memory. And I think she was wondering if there was something paranormal, so to speak, going on. If it's not just uh, people falsely remembering something and there's some easy debunk for it. But if there could be something else going on, something maybe related to alternate timelines or the like. You have been working particularly, actually, you know, you've been working on Fruit of the Loom and you've been working on the um, Shazam Kazam controversy. So, yeah, do you want to explain the situation with the Fruit of the Loom? Yeah, so basically the, the best way to start the story actually is with Shazam which is the so-called Simbad Genie movie. There was a journalist named Amelia Tate, and she had noticed that there was a group of Redditors that had assembled with the subreddit for the Mandela Effect, and they were realizing that they all remembered they have this nominally false memory of Sinbad playing a genie, and a lot of them thought the name of the movie was Shazam. And, of course, no such movie ever existed. And they ended up asking Sinbad about it, and he was laughing it off, like, nope, that's, that's, you got the wrong person. That's Shaq in Kazam. And eventually, I guess, it just started getting attention, so Amelia Tate figured, what the heck, I'll write an article about it. I would guess, much to her surprise, more and more people came out. I mean, just thousands and thousands of people came out saying, no, wait a second, we remember Sinbad playing a genie. And yeah, we remember Kazam also in a lot of instances. And these were very different movies. And a lot of experiencers even remembered, like when Kazam first came out, seeing it in theaters or seeing the trailer, thinking to themselves, wait, wait a second, why are they ripping off Shazam? Like, didn't Sinbad just do this movie? And so they actually had that memory. And one of the big ones, if not maybe the biggest after that, would be the, the Fruit of the Loom logo. And so, again, it kind of moves from the Reddit Mandela effect experiencers community 
into the main string. And all of these Mandela effects, I mean, there's a bunch of other ones like Berenstein, Berenstein Bears. That's another one we talked about, you know, the false memory of Nelson Mandela dying. Of course, that's a big one, too. But the cornucopia one gets a lot of attention. And in the years since, I would say other than the Sinbad Genie movie, it's probably the one that is like the silver medal for the most popular. That would be my assessment. Yeah, because so many of us, and I'm strongly in this category, we remember that the Fruit of the Loom garments, they had a logo that had fruit on them, and then there was a cornucopia or horn of plenty in the background. Yes, that's, that's exactly what I think millions of people remember. I've never done a head count. I don't know how you would begin to you know, do a head count of the room, but it's got to be something in the millions. I mean, there are just thousands and thousands of people all over the place and it's not it's not contained to one specific demographic like the shazam case and it's not contained to one specific region like the shazam case also appears to be it's primarily for the most part people in north america but the the um the cornucopia fruit of the loom thing is everywhere and it makes sense because fruit of the loom products are sold everywhere as well they have a very big global distribution i the company insists that there has never been a cornucopia on their garment logo. Absolutely. They have insisted that definitely multiple times. I think the first person who asked them was a Redditor, you know, who was just very passionate about this subject and experience for themselves. And they got a DM back from Fruit of the Loom. And they said in no uncertain terms, you know, you know, it's funny, like we have people at our own company who swear it was a thing, but it's never been a thing. Our logo has never had a cornucopia on it. And they've since confirmed that uh, subsequently in other instances as well. Yeah. I've reached out. So in anticipation of this interview, I reached out to Fruit of the Loom and uh, they have not gotten back to me. That was about five days ago that I wrote them an email. Have you reached out to Fruit of the Loom company to confirm this for yourself that they're still denying that they ever had a cornucopia in their logo? I have not. I mean, my understanding is they've denied it so many times, and there's even graphics online that show you the history of the Fruit of the Loom logo, and it does go through little changes and stuff, but there's just never been a cornucopia. But no, I, I haven't personally reached out to them myself. So you say there's never been a cornucopia, but your own research has found that there's some reasons to think there were cornucopias, right? You found, uh, like, the original patent mentions a cornucopia yeah so in the mandela effect experiencers community they've they've adopted this term called residue and what they mean by residue it'd be different people have kind of different takes on the theory behind it but what basically what it means is some sort of residue residual evidence from you know years decades prior that either i suppose option a this thing did in fact exist or option b at a minimum Lots of people thought it did and were committing to public record this so-called false memory of the cornucopia. And so the residue in the instance of the Fruit of the Loom case goes back all the way to the 70s. It, uh, 1973 is the earliest year I'm familiar with. But, you know, particularly in the in the Mandela effect community, these these guys are really passionate and they're always unearthing earlier stuff. So it may well go back even before that. But certainly at a minimum, by 1973, you have residue popping up. There is a newspaper clipping. There is an album cover by an artist named, uh, I believe he's a jazz artist named Frank Wess. And it's called, the album is mm -hmm. called Flute of the Loom. And the, the album cover, it's very easy to Google if anyone's listening who hasn't seen it. 
looks exactly like the logo that people claim to remember. It looks like, you know, something like fruit and then um, something like a cornucopia in the background. And in the same year, interestingly, and I'm, I'm suspicious about whether that's a coincidence or not, but in the same year, you have a trademark filing. And that, to me, is probably the single best piece of evidence of residue, so to speak, that we have in the public record. And what it is, is it is a trademark filing for a logo for laundry detergent. As some people may know, Fruit of the Loom, in addition to being, you know, primarily a clothing manufacturer, got into the laundry detergent business in the 70s and I think kept at it till about the early 80s. It, it, they didn't seem to do very well, but eventually they stopped. And anyway, they filed a trademark request for a logo for their laundry detergent and in the trademark request, there are these categories and there's something called design search codes. And so for people who don't know much about trademark law and everything, when you file a, pat a trademark request, you put in these design search codes. And nowadays it's all digital, but back then it would have even been a more laborious process in the sense that you would have had to pay your lawyers or their clerks or whatever to actually go through physically all these old notebooks and you know pages of documents dating back decades uh, to make sure as best you could that the the mark you were filing for wasn't too similar to an existing mark so that's basically a check for the attorneys and for the public to make sure okay we're, we want this trademark we want to make sure we're not sort of unknowingly getting too close or infringing on somebody else's mark and so that's the purpose of these design search codes and so as you'd expect you get you know fruit and different sorts of fruit and then right at the bottom there's something that says cornucopia or basket of fruit and so the redditor community found this and they were just astounded because it doesn't really make a lot of sense unless the original image had a cornucopia because again this is a formal process fruit of the loom was a big company back then this would have cost a lot of money and so they had to pay their lawyers for, you know, somebody to sit there for presumably hours going through and making sure that this logo with this cornucopia, I assume, wasn't too close to another logo with a cornucopia. And so it really is just mind boggling in a vacuum that they would have spent this money and time, you know, researching other logos with cornucopias to make sure it wasn't too similar. In a vacuum, that's already strange. That sounds to me like a very silly goof. Yeah. And I, I can't really imagine how that happened. And, you know, again, that I assume not, not only were lawyers involved, but probably someone at the company was looking at the documents and so forth. Absolutely. One thing that makes it a little odd is that they say in the description of the trademark that they want that a cornucopia would be part of the logo. But then in the sort of prototype logo that they include in the, in the filing, doesn't have the cornucopia. So that's a little weird, right? Yes, it is very odd. And have you actually seen, looked up the trademark and actually seen the word cornucopia yourself? So I've looked up on the, on the publicly accessible database, I've looked up um, the serial number and verified that, yeah, that's there. The word cornucopia, it's, it's, a, it's like a, a group category. It says cornucopia, baskets of fruit, something like that. It's some sort of a basket or cornucopia. And you can actually click 
the little design code and it pulls up all the other trademark filings that have that same code. And sure enough, basically all of them have something like a cornucopia or a fruit basket. So there's a piece of data. And then you found these newspaper clippings where people are talking about the Fruit of the Loom logo and mentioning that it has a cornucopia. Yes. And, uh, and 1973, again, very interestingly, is the first one I'm aware of. There are others over the years. Another big one comes from 1992, I believe. Or sorry, no, 1994. 92 was something else. 94, uh, there was a journalist named Billy Cox. And interestingly, he's now writing about the UFO topic, which I just find so funny because it's like back when he made that alleged slip, that because <laughs> he says right there, the Fruit of the Loom logo originally had a cornucopia in it. That was probably the furthest thing from his mind that one day he'd be writing about the paranormal topic and that somehow this Fruit of the Loom logo would be involved in it, right? So it's, it's pretty interesting as sort of a cosmic twist of fate that it's him. I, I, I got to get a kick out of that myself. But yeah, but that's another example. And then you've also got um, the, uh, the little videos that you, people have been making uh, where they say, like, they specifically remember because that's how they learned what a cornucopia was. In fact, I like this one you have, uh, you have this YouTuber, Bella Talks. Can you hold on a second? Let's just roll that clip. But the main reason this one is a huge Mandela effect for me is because it's the way that I found out what a cornucopia was. So when I was a kid, my mum bought me like some Fruit of the Loom underwear. It's like came in like a little like plastic box thing, a little plastic packet. And it had like a logo on the outside and it had like that cornucopia. So I remember like me and my mum were talking and I asked her like what it was and she was saying it's like a, I think she calls it a horn of plenty, but but yeah, she was like, that's a horn of plenty. And we were like talking about the logo. People have these very particular memories of like, you know, that's how I learned what a cornucopia was, was because I saw it for the first time on the underwear, which is just baffling, right? If, if in fact it was never there, what are people remembering? So these are the three lines of evidence you have, right? You have the trademark, you have um, some newspaper clippings of people mentioning it in the past and then of course we have this collective memory that many of us have of the cornucopia is that those are all the lines of evidence right well those are big ones but um there are other examples of residue this is one of those mandela effects where it's it's so big it's hard to have a completely extensive list of all this you know so-called residue now i would think that the two best hypotheses for explain this phenomena one would be that there's something very similar to the Fruit of the Loom logo that we've all been seeing that does have a cornucopia that's caused us to make this conflationary error. And the other one I would think would be that the company is just wrong. Like they maybe they did for a while have a different logo and then they swapped it out and they've somehow as a company forgotten. Like maybe the guy responsible for maintaining the logo retired one year and then they swapped in a slightly different one and just like period of chaos at the company and then everybody just kind of forgot about it didn't notice um any thoughts on those two hypotheses can you rule them out some people think that you know there's just this kind of archetypal memory like we we have this image in our head this this archetypal you know fruit spread out on a table and a cornucopia in the bat in the background but the problem with that it doesn't explain why everyone's remembering the same more or less cornucopia designed and looking the same way. I mean, there's all sorts of fruit baskets in the sort of cultural uh, ether. Mm -hmm. 
and it doesn't explain why they're all remembering the same one. And then additionally to that, it doesn't explain cases like you, I think, brought up and so many other people have that they learned what a cornucopia was from the logo yeah. <laughs> that they they have an active memory and we're talking about thousands of people i i presume who have this memory of discovering what it was from the logo and then there's even another counterpoint to that which is that some people and again i i, I can only assume we're talking about thousands because you see it pop up so much some people didn't even realize it was a cornucopia they thought it was like a chip or a bugle they just remember it looking the same so that's even harder to explain. And then how about that last hypothesis that I mean I think is pretty like if you're if you're up against the alternative being what I think we're about to get into which is something genuinely paranormal um you would definitely want to cover all your bases and so what about the the base of well maybe the company has made some kind of egregious error and like the company collectively just doesn't have the memory. In fact, you know when people talk to the company allegedly the company says, well, some of the people who work here remember it having a cornucopia, but it never did, right? Suggesting, you know, possibly a misremembrance by the staff. It just sounds really hard for me to believe. I mean, cornuc you know, the records exist of their logos. They know what their records are. They know the trademarks they've filed. Um, there's people who've been at this company for decades. It's just how could something have gotten into potentially commercial usage without them knowing it or having any record of it pretty obviously fake okay so what do you think is going on here so that's really the question um i think what's going on here is there was a an author that i'm sure you know potentially you or lots of people know about but philip k dick in case anyone's not familiar with him he he wrote the original story that the movie Blade Runner was based on and Minority Report. And he was a really smart man, in my opinion. He had a lot of interesting theories and a lot of prescient theories. He, he seemed to have a, a kind of track record of seeing around the corner. He had this idea, this theory that there are all of these different Earths, all of these different worlds kind of overlapping with each other. And since our consciousness is non-local... Could it also be applying to these kind of alternate timelines? Are there these alternate realities? So when you have the feeling maybe that you've seen the cornucopia on the Fruit of the Loom logo, okay, maybe it really never did exist. That's, that's perfectly possible. Maybe we all just have this shared false memory from another timeline because mm -hmm. we've already lived a different version of this present since time itself is basically just... A construct anyway and it's all kind of more or less happening at once which checks out very well with you know modern quantum physics then maybe we you know our consciousness can kind of remember sometimes there's some bleed over this waveform data which kind of comprises the universe bleeds over from one timeline to the other and that same logic might be true in deja vu that could help explain what deja vu is which is an idea that goes all the way back to plato he he thought there was something like that going on too in any event, so, you know, back to this, what I find really interesting about Philip K. Dick, you go, okay, well, he's a sci-fi author. But what's interesting about this, though, is he gave this press conference in the 70s, and he spoke for like an hour about this orthogonal time idea because he felt very personally moved by it. But what's so fascinating about it is the Mandela effect was not really a thing on people's radar back then. It's really not until 2016 when that article comes out that 
all of a sudden everybody knows what the Mandela effect is. It, it was not taken seriously as any sort of a sociological phenomenon, let alone a paranormal one. Yeah. But he specifically says, if we're on the lookout to test my theory that these are, there are these other timelines, these other Earths, the only way or the best way we'd be able to tell is we'd, we'd have these shared false memories. We'd reach for a light in the bathroom and it's not there and it's never been there. And so we'd have some idiosyncratic ones, some personal ones, but we'd also probably have these shared ones probabilistically that like tons of people remember. So he's basically talking about the Mandela effect <laughs> as something we should expect if in fact this this orthogonal time, overlapping timelines thing is true. We did a whole episode on this, uh, episode 35, The Strange Last Days of Philip K. Dick, and I play entire you know, chunks from that speech he gave in France where he was talking to the science fiction writers convention and telling them about his theory of orthogonal time. My interpretation of what he's talking about there um, he was that he believed he was actually able to move from like what we would call today a parallel universe. You know, he thought he he had actually been to some of these worlds or at least channeled them in his dystopian science fiction. And he thought that he had been in a dystopian version of the United States and that was somehow involved in his uh, mystical experiences and that he had somehow sort of escaped, right? He, I think he thought he had sort of like uh, moved from one world to another. Is that your reading of that? Yes, basically, yeah. I mean, what, what he's saying is that, okay, so his first book, his first novel-length book that was published was called The Man in the High Castle, and it's about exactly what you described, which is an alternate dystopian timeline where the Axis powers had won World War II. And it's, you know, there have been film and TV adaptions since. It was basically what it sounds like. It's the United States, but, like, it's run by Nazis and, you know, fascists or whatever. Yeah. And anyway, later on, and that's sort of the, the point of this press conferences, later on he revealed to people that he had actually had some of these false memories and experienced the feeling of having, you know, traveled to kind of remotely, almost like a remote viewing thing, to these other timelines before. And he had had these memories and they were informing his writing, although he kind of like didn't even quite know it at the time. He didn't know that that's, he felt compelled to do it. But so anyway, yeah, he's very much an experiencer himself. And I think you hit the nail right on the head in the sense that implicit in all of this, or explicit really in the sense of the press conference, is this idea that this waveform data, that whatever's ultimately comprising the universe, even at the subatomic level, is bleeding through from one timeline to the other. And to me, that brings up a really interesting question, which is, okay, are we simply dealing with memories that are bleeding over, which to me seems perfectly theoretically possible? One of the concerns I have about the idea of um, different timelines or that and bleed over being responsible for the Mandela effect is, so treat it as a scientific hypothesis good scientific hypotheses are supposed to be falsifiable, right? So if if it turns out that they're not true, you're sh you should be able to find evidence that shows they're not true, right? They, this is the criticism that people make of like string theory. They say like, well, there's no way to test string theory to know if, we're, like, if it's true or not. So people will say that's not really a good scientific theory. 
Um, phlogistine, the idea that fire is some kind of like liquid and not just a chemical reaction, right? From the like medieval era, people would be like, well, there was no way to ever like test, right? You, if the phlog the phlogistine theory, you couldn't, you couldn't prove it wrong. It just, cause it didn't say anything. So my thing is, um, yeah, what, what would it look like to disprove time traveling Mandela effects? Do you have any, have you any idea about this? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's a, it's a perfectly fair question, too. Um, what I think is the following. It is theoretical. I mean, that's true. But, you know, the existence of alternate worlds is a matter of you know, quantum mechanics and theoretical physics. That's all theoretical. Mm -hmm. There's no way of really knowing till we know. Whether it's falsifiable, I assume it would be. I assume anything is falsifiable if there's evidence to the contrary. But think of it this way. We already know from things like the double slit experiment that at the quantum level, the nature of time and reality already seems to be provably weird, so to speak, you know, whatever's going on. But another way to think of it is, okay, maybe this will remain conjecture. Maybe it will remain some sort of a theory we can't prove unless, of course, we found evidence to prove it. If, you've, if you did find these artifacts and if you could tell that they were not made in our timeline, that would be evidence that there are other timelines. Do you see what I mean? You could, you, could, you could probably prove it another way. In terms of it being falsifiable, I guess you would just have to somehow find proof that there are no other timelines and that's an interesting question I, I don't know what the answer to that is well take any take any given thing like go back to the fruit of the loom thing like well what what would resolve the fruit of the loom quandary for you in a way that left you comfortable this is not a mandela effect what kinds of can you imagine a scenario where it's just like hey turned out that was just a weird situation but now we all can agree that wasn't a time traveling mandela incident well, for me, okay, so that's kind of, it's a great question. It's a little complicated. I would say that there's already so much, so many experiencers out there. I mean, we, we simply must be talking about millions when you add up everybody from the past, you know, several decades. Yeah. There's already so much evidence there to suggest that people are remembering this in a way that simply has to be unlikely probabilistically as a false memory alone. But if somebody could produce a Kazam style, you know, if, if somebody could find one of these alleged counterfeiters and go, wow, look at this, the logo had the cornucopia. And I guess they've just been rotting away in people's closets and, and you know, moldy and we didn't notice. If somebody could produce something like that, a credible, alternative explanation confined to the normal rules of reality in our timeline that would account for why so many people misremember this yeah i would probably be satisfied you know and i think a lot of other mandela effect experiencers would be also timeline say we find a pallet of of old fruit of the loom underwear and it's got the cornucopia on it we find um you know a b boxes and boxes in a warehouse somewhere yeah what is that is that is that disproof or are the Mandela effect people going to say, well, maybe this is a an artifactual bleed over? These are artifacts from another timeline. That's how they got that. Excellent. <laughs> that's what I'm worried about. Right. No. And that's that's a very, very good point. And I think that cuts to the heart of the matter here, which is, OK, 
let's say somebody does find the box of underwear with the cornucopia, right? Now the question, as you're saying, is, is this proof or disproof? <laughs> does, it, does it prove that there was a physical bleed over and it was being covered up or forgotten or whatever? Or is it disproof? Is it proof that this has a normal explanation? And I think what that would come down to would be mm. the context of it. It would come down to, okay, who made this stuff? Where did it come from? Who knew about it? What was the story, et cetera, et cetera? I think it would, you, you'd have to sort of analyze it um, on those terms. It certainly seems like no matter what happens with these Mandela Effect cases, somebody is deeply wrong about something they feel quite strongly about. And that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. And I guess you're right. I mean, somebody would be would be wrong. I, people have, you know, passionate viewpoints about this. I guess at some point there's kind of either alternative timelines bleeding over or there's not. Right. I mean, um, but I, I, I don't necessarily even get that impression from most people. I think that even the skeptics for the most part, unless they're really just on some sort of a debunk mission, the impartial, the dispassionate skeptics are just like, okay, you know, maybe it's possible. Maybe there are these other timelines. Maybe they do bleed over a little bit. Let's wait and see proof. You know, so so even most of the skeptics may not end up being deeply wrong. They were just sort of awaiting evidence. And who knows, maybe someone will find it. DJ Dooley, where can people go to find your work? If they want to follow you and see more of what you're doing. Um, you can check me out on Twitter. It's just at DJ Duel. That's D-E-E-J-A-Y-D-U-U-L. I post threads there. I do kind of deep dives on books and topics and stuff like that. Um, I do hope to do a book one day. I haven't like started writing it or anything, but I might, I might want to do it on this Mandela effect topic because I just think it's so, it's so compelling. And I think if most people hear about the Mandela effect and they go, so what? It's false memory. What's the big deal? I have false memories too. But when you actually do a deeper dive on the evidence, in my opinion, you realize, okay, this is legitimately hard to explain. And so mm -hmm. I think that a book on this topic might be something I'm interested in because it's it's kind of in this little perfect niche, in my opinion, for, for me, where the evidence is extraordinarily compelling, but at the same time, people are just at this phase where we're kind of accustomed to laughing it off. And so it might be nice to kind of help help fill that void a little bit. Well, thanks so much for coming on, DJ. Thanks for having me. It's been great. I made inquiries with the CIA and Fruit of the Loom regarding aspects of this interview. was unable to receive any reply from either of them. I did, however, find the 1973 trademark filing from Fruit of the Loom that mentions a horn of plenty. That's number 0993305, and you can find it on trademarkia.com for free. <laughs>